0: Well, good morning. Again, my name is Roger, in case you haven't met, and uh, man, I'd love to meet you. If you're new to Restore Church, I'd love to take you out for a cup of coffee and let you pay for it, or or maybe even lunch. Um, this morning, uh, we were setting up. We get here about 6.30. We started to set all this up to get ready for church, and uh, one of one of the guys that were here, they, they were about to leave, um, and they said, hey, look over there, in the parking lot There's a baseball. And we all know that baseball is God's gift to uh, really the world. It is becoming the world's sport, because p- soccer is not really a sport. So it is the world's sport, and uh, is America's, uh, America's favorite pastime. And it reminded me of this morning's sermon a little bit. Now, I, I love baseball. There's a, there's a movie called Moneyball, with Brad Pitt, and there's this line in the middle of it, and then he ends the movie with this line, how can you not be romantic about baseball. October is the best time, best sports time of the year. Uh, football, right? The NFL season starts to kick up. College football, every game in October matters. You've got to win out October, right, to be there at the end. But even more than that, America's favorite pastime is going to come to a conclusion in the month of October uh, with the playoffs. It's the bottom of the seventh inning. In high school, you play seven innings. It's the bottom of the seventh inning. There's runners on first, second, and third. The bases are loaded. We are losing by one. One run comes in from third. Tie game, we go into, uh, we go into extra innings. But two runs, we win. Now, an, a 17-year-old, Roger Burns, steps up to the plate with pictures of playing collegiate baseball, playing for the Cincinnati Reds. I still haven't given up that dream, and they suck so bad that they're going to call me any time now to play for them. And so I step up to the plate. Now, I don't know if you know anything about baseball, but four balls you get to go to first base. It pushes all the runners around, and we tie, right? But you don't play the game to tie, right? You play the game to win. And I step up to the plate, and uh, it goes uh, three balls, No strikes. Okay, now I'm a little bit, I was just a tad bit conceited, maybe a little bit more tad bit. And, and so another ball comes up in and I see it being a ball, but I swing anyway knowing that I'm going to miss it just so I can stay alive. Because here's the deal, I'm not playing for a tie, I don't want to walk. I didn't, you know, I'm not going to go to D1 baseball, I had no shot anyway. But I'm not going to go play Division I college baseball by taking a walk with the bases loaded in the bottom of the last inning. The next pitch comes, y'all, and it is a beautiful fastball right down the middle, and I hit it back right to the pitcher. He throws it to first, game is over, and instead of being the hero, I am just an idiot. My coach knows, he knows me probably better than anybody, he coached me the last three years, he pulls me to the side and said, what were you thinking? And I said, man, I just wanted to win This is what he told me, sometimes as an individual, we've got to lose so that we can win. This morning, we're going to talk about a topic that I particularly am not excited about. It's that conversation that just has to be had. No one really wants to talk about it. I'd much rather talk about love and grace and forgiveness. I'd rather talk about mercy and and peace and marriage. That's my favorite thing to talk about. But man, I, I think for us as a church, if, if we're going to win as a church, like not just restore, but as the church, we got to learn to lose. And that's not fun. Ends, like the end of things. Endings are hard. Saying goodbyes or I'll see you laters, they're difficult. But they're even more difficult when they're about meaningful things, like, th- like not trivial things like baseball. Or sporting events. Or or the end of a bad movie or or a book that should have been different. Uh, a, A date that we wish would have lasted forever or, I don't know, whatever it is, maybe a sermon that you just can't get enough of. Trivial things like that. I mean, but what if it was, endings are really awful when they're about things of significance. Like relationships. We started this series a couple weeks ago, and man, your encouragement has been awesome. Like, the feedback that we've got, that, that we've received about this particular series has been awesome. This is about the conversations that, it's, that it has started in your own homes and, and amongst your friends and with your children. Um, we love hearing that kind of feedback, okay? We love hearing about how God is working in your life, so, so please don't stop. But particularly this series of, of building healthy relationships is so needed in our culture, and especially among my age demographic, but one thing that we have not, we've talked about how to build these healthy relationships, how to exist in relationships, how to strengthen them, but what happens when they have to end? Inevitably, we will always see these in our lives. And not just when they end because of a new duty station or or because the Marine Corps moves you away from... (laughs) the greatest city in the world, okay. we're talking about the significant endings to real relationships. I've um, heard things like, we were such good friends. I'm not sure what happened. I guess just over the years, the friendship meant more to me than it did to them. Maybe you've said or heard things like, it just began to hurt more than me. It was hurting those around me. It starting to impact who I was, and we just couldn't continue being friends anymore. We began to value different things. What happens when those disagreements, the Bible will call it a sharp disagreement in a second, what happens when those sharp disagreements drive us in opposite sides? Last week we talked about what happens when in a friendship or in a relationship when someone sins against you. Uh, well, you go to them one-on-one, and then if that doesn't work, you bring someone else with you. And then if that doesn't work, you bring, like, a smaller group that we call the church, like your life group or something like that. And then if that still doesn't work, we pursue them the way that Christ would pursue someone outside of the church. And in that passage, Jesus is is teaching us how to do that, but in that passage he says, Hopefully, we will win back our brother or sister. But what happens inevitably when we don't? What happens when the disagreement is insurmountable? Go ahead and in your Bible. I want you to find Acts uh, chapter 15. Now, we have some volunteers who would love to pass out a Bible to you. If you do not have a Bible, we want to give you one. We want that to be yours. So you just throw your hand up real quick and... uh, And Miss Rachel will bring you a Bible. If you do not need a Bible, that's all right, uh, or that's probably better. You can use your phone. Uh, You can use your phone, uh, the the Restore Church app under the bulletin section. You can see the songs that we've sung through this whole series. You can see um, the, the announcements. Man, I'm so glad that I get to preach while holding a baseball. It's like God's two favorite things, you know. But I'm distracting myself. Uh, You can follow along on the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow on the Restore Church app, or or on the screens, but ultimately you need to have God's Word in your hand uh, when you're at home to be able to study. I want you to, to remember this. As we go through the book of Acts, remember this key truth. The church... And I'm not talking about just Restore Church. I'm talking about Church with a capital C, the Church Worldwide Universal. The church should always represent unity, even when we disagree. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. The church should always, will always represent unity, even within disagreement. When you begin the book of Acts, you read about the history of the church, The beginning of the church, it begins like no other institution in the history of the world, and they keep unity. At the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that they gave so much that anyone who had need, their need was met, and they kept unity. Well, Peter starts to fight for the spreading of the gospel, and then the church grows to, when we get to Acts chapter 6, the first opportunity for division. And the disciples gather they say what should we do well let's let's create some table waiters or the bible calls them our first set of deacons in acts chapter 6 and and they can handle the ministry of the church while the disciples can give their attention to preaching and to prayer crisis averted actually when division is handled properly unity is strengthened oh man the gospel of jesus starts to spread like crazy so much so that one of those uh, one of those uh, deacons is stoned to death right there in Acts chapter 7. Well, the beginning of Acts chapter 8 sends all of the Christians fearing for their life running away. But the Bible says that wherever they scattered, they preached the word of God. So in Acts chapter 8, we see the spreading of the gospel to all of the earth. And then we we're introduced this character named Saul in Acts chapter 9. Saul is this persecutor of the church. He's on his way to tear apart yet another community of believers. But Jesus interrupts his travel. He blinds him and really calls him to start preaching for Jesus instead of persecuting for what Saul thought was for God. He got his attention. Man, uh, we, we're introduced to this, like you keep reading through Acts, and you'll see this. This rubbing of racial tension between Jews and Gentiles in church, uh, like, handles it so well. There's an inclusion now of those who are not Jewish, and we are thankful for that, all of us Gentiles who are not Jewish. And so now, there is this beautiful picture of this mosaic that makes up the church, of people from all different backgrounds, male, female, Gentile, Jew, slave, and free. There's this inclusion part. What happens? You see, you see this Saul, persecutor of the church. He's, he's transformed by Jesus on his road to persecute the church. And he, he comes back and now he's like, all right, now I'm preaching, for, I'm preaching the gospel. Well, these disciples who put it all on the line in Acts chapter 6, what are they to think about this persecuting Saul who is now a preacher? Okay, you can preach the gospel. Just not over here, brother. You can go preach over there where I am safe over here. Well, then we're introduced to this character named Barnabas. Uh, his name means son of encouragement. He is by nature an encourager. My, my son is a Barnabas. He wants to make, he kind of wants to make harmony amongst things. He will do whatever it is to care for other people. And so Barnabas, he takes his role in the kingdom of God and says, Hey, Saul, come over here. I want you to introduce you to my friends. But I'm going to do it in a public place where everyone can defend me if you go crazy. No, that's not what happens. He says, come, come over here, Saul, which we know now as Paul. I want to introduce you to the disciples. And Barnabas kind of takes Saul under his wing, introduce him, this is Peter, he's got kind of a loud mouth. This is Simon, watch out, he'll punch you in the neck if you're not paying attention. You know, he just kind of goes through them all like that. Well then, we get, to, uh, we, we get this, this opportunity that God needs our first set of missionaries or church planters. And God tells the disciples to set apart for me Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13. So Paul and Barnabas, they go all up and down creating a unique bond. Man, there is such a unique bond with the people who make this church happen, that, that start new churches. And, and so Paul and, and Barnabas, they go all around uh, starting new churches. Ministering to existing Christians and collecting finances for the poor church in Jerusalem. Well, after that missionary journey is over, we find ourselves in Acts chapter fifteen, and we're going to read this together. Man, that was a big recap of Acts. Whew! Took a lot of words and a loud breath. Here we go, verse thir- verse. <laughs> I guess I have no words left. I can't even say thirty six. Verse 36, chapter 15, verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and let's see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. We're going to call him John Mark. This is also the author of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Anybody who's been in a life group with me will recognize uh, this passage. They They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul, he's this type A personality. He is a church planter by trade. He like is a go-get it kind of guy. He's the guy who will go to work, work ten hours, get home, and then and then look around for all of the things that need to be done. I need to cut the grass, fix the shed, uh, and make dinner. Right? All of your husbands. It's exactly like him. Like he is just a driven, driven, focused guy. And there is nothing that's going to take him. Off of his course, then over here you have Barnabas, Barnabas, this encourager. I want to make harmony. When you think of encouragement, though, think more like a football coach. There are times when a football coach will come alongside a player and say, "Man, it's all right. Next time you will make you'll make the field goal, right?" Then there are other times a football coach will rip the player to shreds because of his insubordination or because he missed the 26-yard field goal. Anybody watched the Clemson game yesterday, you'll get the reference. All right, so anyway, here's Barnabas, this football coach, this I will get in your face when I need to encourage you, but I will also guide you along when I need to do that. And then you have young John Mark. He's just here to learn. He's on an internship. He's doing a church-planting residency with Peter, or with Paul and Silas. And they're all sitting there. Let's just imagine they're sitting there. And, and, and Paul, this driven, his, his knee starts to twitch a little bit. He, he needs to go. Like He's not the kind that's going to sit around. And he says, hey, Barnabas, let's go. Let's go do something. You know what? Let's go back to all the churches that we just visited. Let's make sure that they're doing well. And Barnabas, oh, Paul, you're always the one with good ideas. You know, let's, let's do it. Let's go. Let's take John Mark with us says, are you kidding me? How can you think that it's a good idea to take John Mark uh, with us? Now, we've talked about this passage before. How can you think that it's a good idea to take John Mark? He deserted us. Now, the Bible, the Greek word for deserted is the word apostasia. You might recognize that word as apostatized. It means he flipped. So in verse 36, uh, I'm sorry, in verse um, 38, it says, But Paul did not think it was wise to take him, because he he deserted him. This is not a, hey, y'all go preach, I'm going to get tacos, we'll catch up later. Paul and Barnabas are being persecuted for the preaching of the gospel, and John Mark is like, I didn't know that this is all it was going to be. I can't take it, I'm out. And he left them in the middle of their missionary journey and went back home. Paul's like, Barnabas, you can't be serious. We're not going to take this kid who just flipped on us in Pamphylia. I've got a life to live. And my life is important. God wants me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles who are not, who are not Jewish. You know, Barnabas, i got to get to Rome, eventually i got to get to Spain, so that the gospel can, can travel all over the world. I'm not putting my life at risk for John Mark. And Barnabas is like, Paul, I think you're forgetting. Aren't you forgetting the last message you preached about grace and forgiveness and compassion? Aren't you forgetting about the fruit of the Spirit, Paul? Like, we need to take John Mark with us. He's young. Don't we all make mistakes when we're young? And Paul, if I remember right, weren't you a little lost too? Who was it that put their neck on the line for you so that you could preach the gospel? Wasn't it me? So I think we should take John Mark. Paul's like, he's just your cousin. That's the only reason that they were cousins. And Paul's like, no way, man. The Bible says they have such a sharp disagreement that they have to split ways. And, and Paul takes Silas, and he goes toward his hometown to start to preach the gospel. And, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and he starts to go toward his hometown to preach the gospel. So here's the question. What can we learn from an invigorated Paul and encouraging Barnabas and a young, fickle John Mark? We're going to learn four lessons today from this passage that are really going to help us in our sharp disagreements here's the first lesson that we learn uh, from Paul and Barnabas argue over what matters whose side are you on like if if we had to divide the room on whose side are you going to take are you going to take Paul's side are you going to take Barnabas's side which side would you take now, my imagination is, is most men are going to take Barnabas' side. Most mothers are going to take, I'm sorry, flip that. Most men are going to take Paul's side. Most moms will take Barnabas's side. Uh, I, I don't know everywhere in between that, where that leaves you. But, whose side would you take? Now, I, I'm going to take Barnabas, I'm going to take Paul's side. Uh, that that kind of takes my personality a little bit on, but also because, Paul's a little bit louder, and so if I get to heaven, uh, Barnabas is going to forgive me anyway. I mean, when I get to heaven, Barnabas is going to forgive me anyway, uh, and me and Paul can be tight. Okay, <laughs> that's what I hope for. Um, who's, whose side are you on? I think what's important here is, um, is to remember this. For Paul, it mattered. Like, like this matters. And Paul says, I'm going to take this seriously. And so who we take is not just whoever puts their hand up and wants to come. But you've got to earn your way on this trip with me. And for Barnabas, it matters. Because Barnabas isn't just this this laser-focused, headstrong individual. He's focused on relationships and encouragement and wanting to restore people. For both Paul and Barnabas, this was life and death. What do you argue about? What was your, you and your spouse's last argument? Or, or you and your friends, what, what was your last argument about? Was it about uh, the wet towel that didn't get hung up correctly? Or how they didn't get folded and you're picking laundry up off of the chair in the corner of your room? Whether or not the garbage got taken out after you said you were going to do it, in the fourth quarter. <laughs> Did you argue about why you never listen to me or why we never talk anymore? Ken Sandy, he wrote a book. I'd recommend all of you to get it and read it. It's called The Peacemaker. And in it, he outlines how to be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says. And so <clears throat> he writes this book called uh, Peacemakers and a, a way toward conflict management, and one of the early chapters is titled this. Now this has helped me so much in my marriage and in my friendships. Here's the principle. Let the little things go. we just got so much freedom in here about our relationships and our marriages. Let the little things go. Most fights and disagreements They happen about little things. Little things that, in the long run, they don't matter at all. Like, if I'm going to—so, I like relationships, okay? Uh, It's why we have this series. And yearly, we do a marriage series. I mean, relationships are important. They're important to Jesus. They're important to the church. and, And so I like to do relationships well. And here's my thing. If a deep relationship that I have is going to end, I want it to be over something that matters, not something that doesn't. Here's a little um, uh, helpful hint for you. Next time you're fired up about something uh, and, and you're ready to let him or her or them have it, you need to back up and ask yourself this question. Am I able to let this go? Ken Sandy says 90% of the time the answer is yes. When we're able to let the little things go, this this is important for us. Uh, You've heard a husband complain about his wife uh, and say, man, she's always on my back. She's always nagging or, or something like that. Or you might have heard a wife complain to say, man, he's always complaining. When we let little things go, it preserves us. It preserves our words, our energy, and our emotions for things that matter. And so uh, Erin is really good at letting the little things go. She just told me, uh, I think it was last week, She said, yeah, you know, I let little things go, and I was like, oh, really? Well, I don't, so tell me what the little things are, and she goes through a lot of little things that she lets go, and I was like, oh, man, all right, I appreciate you, I appreciate you, but then the other week, uh, you know, after after Sundays in the fall when it's not 100,000 degrees outside, uh, we like to go, and on Sundays, man, after church, we're just like a waste, and we just go home, and like, it takes just so much energy, and so, we decide in the fall that we do it at the beach. Like, if we're going to veg, let's, let's do it at the beach. So we're ready. I'm amped up. I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, she, and before we leave, she said, hey, can we talk for a minute? And because she preserves herself and not stressing out all these little things that I do, like leave my dirty clothes by the side of the bed, when she says, it's, hey, can we talk, I know that it's about something that matters to her. Let the little things go. It will mean more to your relationships and more to the things that matter. Here's the second lesson we learned. Keep the main thing the main thing. This is tough. I want to win. I want to hit the game-winning double so that my name is in the newspaper, right? And so everyone's piling on me uh, in the middle of the infield. But sometimes when we keep the main thing the main thing, we have to lose in order that we all might win. What's the most important thing for? Uh, what's the most important thing in, in that passage we studied together? For Paul, it's the spreading of the gospel, and he's not willing to accept the liability. For Barnabas, it's the restoration of John Mark in order that they might spread the gospel. Who does win this argument? Now, if you type this in Google, a lot of people are going to have a lot of different opinions. Barnabas took the high road in his restoration. Uh, they, they use biblical examples of, of how uh, Luke thinks that, Luke, who wrote Acts? Luke wrote Acts. Of how Luke thinks that Barn, or that Paul won the argument. Really? who Who wins this argument? I want to emphasize a point we made last week when we're talking about, Uh, when someone sins against us. And and here's here's this point. Unless there is unity, there is no winner. We, as the church, capital C, church, we do not win unless unity is reached, even within our disagreements. Before we talk about who wins, or before we talk about the main thing, I want to give you a couple examples of what it looks like when we don't keep the main thing the main thing. It looks like saying whatever we want because we're angry. That looks like winning. You're in an argument with your spouse and you say, oh, I know what will make her cry and this will make me win, so I'm going to say it. You know that you've lost the idea of the main thing. You know that you've lost the main thing when you have to come back and say, I'm sorry I said that, I only said it because I was angry. That's not an excuse. We've lost the sight of the main thing when we bring things from the past into our arguments in order that we might win. It would be Barnabas saying to Paul, I knew you couldn't get over your past. It would be Barnabas saying to Paul, uh, I knew I shouldn't have brought you to the disciples. It would be Barnabas saying to Paul, um, I knew God couldn't use a murderer like you. Man, if that describes some of your arguments, uh, um, if that describes how how you are investing in in things that matter, you're trying to win. And sometimes it's to the detriment of the team. In premarital counseling, I talk about this principle in arguments that we call piggybacking. It's when we start with an argument about whatever, whatever it is, and then we, we have all these other things that have bothered us, and so then we just add them one on top of the other. It's when all the little things come out, come back out. We really didn't let them go, we just put them in a suitcase to display them when a big thing comes up. We've lost the side of the main thing when we start to add on top, instead of getting to the solution of whatever the issue is. All three of those things, all four of those things, look like trying to win. And winning is not the goal of conflict. Married, married folks, I, I, you need to hear that. Conflict. Winning is not the goal of conflict. The goal of conflict is unity. Togetherness. In our relationships, and our friendships... Even if we have to go our separate ways, how can we do it in a way that glorifies God and seeks unity among the church? In this case, because Paul and Barnabas keep the gospel at the forefront, the kingdom of God wins. You see the outcome of what happens? See a lot of times in our arguments and our fights, when, when we just disagree, when we got to block each other on social media or, or which is like the sharpest disagreement we have in our culture because we're too scared to talk over a cup of coffee. Um, we like, we're like, we got to go our separate ways, right? Um, and then we pout. Uh, we, we, we make ourselves the winner. We'll talk about that in just a second. But, but what if we were to keep the integrity of Christ at the forefront? What if we were to keep the unity of the kingdom of God at our forefront? Well, then the kingdom wins. Do you see what happens? They don't disagree and then say, I'm going home, and we can talk about it at the flagpole at 3 o'clock. And if I'm not there, start without me. You know, that, that kind of thing. It's, what happens is Paul's like, fine, dude. But me and Silas, we got work to do. We're going this way. And Barnabas is like, okay, well, I'll take John Mark, and we will go this way. Do you see what God does? When we decide that losing, it, it, sometimes we have to lose to win, God takes division and turns it into multiplication. When we can keep the, four, the main thing, the main thing, God takes, takes division and turns it into multiplication. Here's the third thing that we learn from, uh, from their argument, or from the sharp disagreement. What we say matters. Words matter. I see some signs uh, around our around this elementary school that are trying to teach these young kids the same things. Now, listen, my age demographic, 31s, millennials, uh, us, and younger, we've got to learn this lesson. So I don't know why, but it's so hard for our generation to learn. This is a hard lesson for me to learn, and I, I feel somewhat like a... Uh, uh, kind of a fraud teaching it. I mean, I'm teaching it to myself also, so you need to hear that from your preacher, is that I'm learning this lesson the hard way a lot of times. Words matter. Check this out. In 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 9, this is Paul writing, okay? Now, he's not writing about this disagreement that they had, but he's writing, and he, he says this, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas, which is Peter? Verse 6. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Paul defends Barnabas. Now this is after their disagreement, but yet he's still defending him as a separate missionary and church planning. In Colossians, this is kind of toward the end of Paul's life. Every time Paul's in prison, he thinks this is the end of his life. We know the story that he gets out, but in Colossians chapter 4, he writes this, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions uh, about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, not that Jesus. That's why we call him Justice. He also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort for me. These are Paul's words years after the conflict. In 1 Corinthians, Paul defends Barnabas. And in Colossians, while in prison, he says that he has received encouragement from Mark, who just years earlier he wouldn't even let him travel with him. I want everyone to hear this, but especially my generation. The words we say after the conflict, after the sharp disagreement, they matter. And here's why. Number one, they matter for the reputation of the church. Many years ago, uh, I, was in, I had this minister that I looked up to a whole lot. But he'd always talk about this guy who I swore I would never meet. He never talked positive. They went to college together. He never talked po- positive about him. Never talked, neg- er, never talked positive. Never shared anything but negative things. Uh, all these conflicts they had. And so you know what I started to say? I hate that dude. I can't stand that dude. Y'all, I'd never met him, (laughs) but I was like, I I can't stand him. Years later came an opportunity for me to work with him, and I'm like, dude, I hate him. Why would, why would I, why would I, like, hang out with him? Well, why do you hate him? Because this dude hates him, so I hate him. You know, just as life worked itself out, I should say as God orchestrated it, I've grown to love both of these men. Now, I would never get them in the same room together, because I think that that's shared, and they just need to leave that alone, but both of these men have poured into me so much. See, what we say after a conflict about other people, it matters, and it influences people, uh, influences people's views and opinions. Here's another reason why our words matter after a conflict, and that is the reputation of Christ. If you're a believer in your workplace, and everyone knows you're a believer, I'm going to let you into something. They are watching you. They want to know the words that come out of your mouth when you're frustrated. When, uh, when, you, and, uh, when, when you and your group are around, and, and the topic of spouses come up, they listen to how you honor your spouse, or how you don't. They listen to... And watch when you stub your toe, or or when when your manager comes in with with bad news, and they also listen to how you talk about other believers. Are you upholding the reputation of Christ when you've had a disagreement? And I'll tell you, there have been times when I have done a fantastic job of this. When me and so and so would have a disagreement, and they say, "You know what? I'm going to another church." Hey, man, I, I appreciate the time you spent at Restore Church. And then the time that you and I have got to do ministry together. But then there have been times where I have not done a good job of this. When uh, when someone and I had to go our separate ways and then their name is brought up. And man, I cannot wait to tell you about how justified I am in that relationship. And you know what? I believe in my sin that I have won people over to my point of view. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to be proud of it. This is the hardest part of the sermon for me to preach. Look, when we start to talk about other people who are not present, whether it's true or not, man, we, we we start to get close to sin, to gossip, talking to someone who is not part of the solution or the problem. When you're talking about someone else to someone else who is not a part of the solution or the problem, it's gossip. And we start to influence the way they see them. Slander, you know, the reputation of other people, when we start talking about other people, it makes them worse in our, own, in our mind. Uh, you know, trying to be relevant with the group. And I found out in the first service, I'm not. I used to be, people used to say, Roger, I like your, your teaching. You're so relatable. I guess I'm not anymore. But you can tell me. There was this phrase that I used to go around, and it would be like, "Keep my, keep my name out. Your mouth you know that and they would say yeah keep my name out your mouth and those are fighting words so Christians let's let's flip it and, and say it this way keep their name out of our mouths for the sake of Christ's name but honestly who wants to do that I like to win and so when they're not around and they've, they're gone or for whatever reason, when the topic comes up, man, i got to jump at it so that you can know that I was right. So that you can know that I'm the winner. I'm not going to take a walk when i got a chance at hitting a double. I want to tell everyone in this room about what they did. And, of course, I'm not going to tell you their side of the story. I just want to tell you, you mine. Now, I'm quick to shoot a text message or something so that I can tell everyone else At the mention of of that person's name, I I jump at an opportunity to allow everyone to know the truth because, well, I'm just being honest. And And God forbid, I'm super guilty of this. I let an opportunity of a joke to pass by. You know, when we keep the main thing the main thing, we stay focused on the main thing, the reputation of Jesus. And these are all words that Paul wrote about Barnabas. But have you thought about what Barnabas might have said about Paul? Now, we don't have this in our Christian Bible and in, in our New Testament. We don't have any words from Barnabas, although you might think Hebrews was written by Barnabas. But even still, there's not many words about Paul in there. Um, we don't really know exactly what Barnabas said about Paul, but we do have some insight this morning from the New Testament. And it brings us to our fourth lesson and our last one. Resolution is never off the table for a Christ follower. I'm going to say this one more time. Resolution is never off the table for a Christ follower. What did Barnabas say about Paul? Well, let's read what Paul writes at the end of his life. This is close to the end of his life. That might let us in on what Barnabas might have said about Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 9 through 11, it it says this, do your best, Paul's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has has deserted me, apostasia, he has flipped, um, because he he loved this world, and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescent has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is useful for me in my ministry. Man, I, I don't know. We don't have any written records. We don't have any any examples of what Barnabas said to Paul. But here's what I can imagine that Paul said about Barnabas. I, I imagine that Barnabas built up Paul. I bet he talked about his tenacious leadership i imagine that paul made excuses or barnabas made excuses for paul barnabas praised god and, and thought highly of the time that they had together every time they hear about a baptism or 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 someone won over because of paul i bet barnabas didn't jump at the time to tell the story about the disagreement i bet he jumped at the opportunity to worship god because of the work that paul had done I bet Barnabas kept up the reputation of Christ, didn't jump at the opportunity to gossip or slander. If you're going to take a message away from this this morning, I hope it's this. It's that reconciliation is never off the table. But it doesn't come overnight. Reconciliation has to happen on our end. I just... uh, I just finished reading a book that was called Revival Starts With Me. Reconciliation starts with me. It starts with the person sitting in your seat. If we're going to sit around and wait for them to come back, to come to us, it's not going to happen. So really quickly, very quickly here at the end, I want to give you a couple ways uh, that we can start the process of reconciliation. Number one, prepare your own heart prepare your own heart. Number two, build up the reputation of Christ and the other person at every opportunity. Praise God for the time that you had with them and for the blessings that they are and were to your life. The lessons learned, the time spent. Another one is that, this one's hard for me, is that you might have to give it time. I like to get things done right here, right now. If we have an issue, let's reconcile, but Not all issues can be reconciled right now. You might have to allow some time. Paul had to wait to the end of his life to be able to think, uh, to be able to say that John Mark was useful for him in his ministry. Might need to be some tough conversations had. We talk about uh, things we love here at Restore more than we talk about things we hate. But my daughter, she's uh, four, she's about to be five in December, and she says, Daddy, we hate one thing. And I, and I say, yeah, Alabama football, you know. Uh, she says, Daddy, we hate one thing. And uh, I said, what's that, baby? And she says, I hate the devil. And if I see him, I'm going to punch him in the eye. I'm like, oh, I love you so much. I mean, she, she's our fighter, man. But I think one thing that, that we've got to hate more than anything is being inauthentic, fake, And if you and this person who have a sharp disagreement decide that you're going to be in the same vicinity of each other, get back in the same group of friends, but you're not going to have the tough conversations for reconciliation, there's not really reconciliation. Remember this, that unity is always the goal of conflict, and sometimes we have to lose to win. You know how many people... Uh, that I have had to split with. I've had, have had, had a sharp disagreement, and it was my fault. And man, I, I've, I've hurt some people, m- more than I'm willing to admit, probably more than I know. Do you know how many people who have really hurt me so we've had to have this, this sharp disagreement, this, this split. Man, it's really hard for me to talk about reconciliation being the goal. Reminds me of a time that my wife and I were getting our certification to be foster care parents. Now, uh, our license has expired, and, and, but, but I want to ask you, man, if God's pulling at your heart to be a foster care parent here in Oslo County, we need you. And we will do whatever it is as a church to help make that happen for you. One of the things that you do is you go through a course um, and they tell you stories, real life stories, about families, kids being taken away. They come in with a garbage bag and they say, throw your, all your belongings in here, your clothes and your toys in this garbage bag. And usually a, a child leaves with one garbage bag full of their belongings. And they show up on your porch uh, in your home within hours, and you, you, eventually you'll hear the story of, of child abuse, child neglect, the kid hasn't eaten in two days, the kid hasn't had a bath in two weeks, the kid sleeps with cockroaches on the floor, and man, my stomach in those classes just turned, and I'm like, this is not okay, let them live with me. I mean, I will build quadruple bunk beds on every wall of my home if it means that these kids don't have to sleep, stay, be hungry, whatever it is. And so, man, I'm like, I've got this righteous anger that I'm in this class, and these kids are going to come home and live with me, and then they're going to fall in love with me because, well, me and my wife are killer parents. Like, we're really good parents, and so these kids are going to just want to live in my house forever. And so uh, I'm excited because I'm going to have 38 kids. Uh, and then the, the, the social worker who's leading the class, she says these words, and it just still makes me so angry. She says, you know, knowing all that you know, the goal is still reunification. And I, I like got a fire in the pit of my stomach And said, you hear what you just said? You're telling me the goal is to get That child back in that home. No way. That's not happening. Well, if you want to be a foster care parent, that's the goal. Sometimes the goal is not something we want, sometimes the goal is something we hate. But man, if we can keep the main thing the main thing, then, then it's not about us winning in the bottom of the last inning because of us it's us losing so that so that we might win the beginning of Ephesians starts like this it says that we were like separate from God but God predestined a process that we might be brought back to him and, and this, the key phrase in there is the process through Jesus God, I'm uh, I'm sorry that I don't do this well. God for- forgive us in our sin. Forgive us for times that we've hurt others unintentionally. God, help us to divide better so that you might multiply your kingdom. God, we we want to win, not for our namesake, but God, for your glory. And so, God, we want to lose every time if it means you win. We pray this prayer so that Jacksonville might change, so this world might change. We want things to be in Jacksonville as they are in heaven. God, let us be one as you and Christ and the Holy Spirit are one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.